This is a Fuente podcast. I one time gave my brother money to go to the store to get me some groceries. He has Asperger's. I gave him money and I said, please get me a loaf of bread and if you see eggs, grab a dozen. He went to the store, got a loaf of bread, saw eggs, and then bought a dozen loaves of bread. Okay, this isn't a real story. This is just a fake little anecdote to introduce the concept of definitions are important. And they're necessary if we want to get our message across. Definitions. The definition of faith is no different than dozen in my anecdote. The definition of faith in its historical context leans much more toward a faithfulness in the goodness of God, or so I will argue, than the faith that he exists, though it does mean both. In the second portion, I'll argue that something called the Thomistic Synthesis Model is the model that makes the most logical sense um, in three models I'm going to look at of how to compare faith and reason. Um, I told the professor for this paper I don't like the prompt. I don't like the prompt of this paper. The paper was asking me to, to reconcile faith and reason. And it took me the longest time to figure out why this paper bothered me. It was like an itch on my back that I knew was there, but I couldn't quite find it. After hours of reflection, I finally landed on what was bothering me. The terms faith and reason are so ambiguous that it seems you can make them conflict or mesh with each other, do whatever you want them to do, really, just by how you define them. It seems more like terms you would use for a friendly audience to move them emotionally. An atheist could make a mocking joke about faith. Uh, you know, oh, it's they believe that this and that without any evidence. That's what faith is. It's by definition believing something with no evidence or whatever. Christian historian could point out that how science is contingent on Christian faith and a creator God. But the question isn't really probative about any fact of the universe outside of how we want to define things unless we come up with clear definitions. Otherwise, we're just playing games with words. In a lesson in vocabulary, semantics is well and good, but it doesn't cut to the heart of the issue. A much better question would be the question of Alvin Plantinga, who set out to answer the question in his book, uh, it's called Warranted Christian Belief. He discussed whether Christian belief was warranted. In other words, Plantinga examined the intellectual or rational acceptability of Christian belief. This would, of course, have many interesting subsets. Is Christianity able to hold up to the same epistemological tests that we use for subjects that aren't scientific, like history? Or is Christian faith comparable to non-evidence presuppositions like perception, memory, a priori intuition, induction, etc.? Are people who argue against Christianity being consistent with their epistemologies? To wit, Are logical positivists applying logical positivism to logical positivism? This would then lead us to the discussion about historical arguments for the resurrection and definitions for clear epistemology. So, in scratching this itch on my back, I found this question. Why not just use reason? Why bother with faith? Why not just use reason and then show that Christianity is supported by the same reason that we use for all our other beliefs? 
That's certainly the sort of path I like to take when I'm debating with atheists online. I find it so much easier to just avoid any accusation that I believe Richard Dawkins' definition of faith. Quote, blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. And that's from Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, 2nd edition, Oxford, Oxford University Press, 1989, page 198. Mark Twain foretold the typical internet atheist interpretation of faith in the words of a schoolboy. He said, quote, faith is believing what you know ain't so. That was a puddinghead in uh, Following the Equator, A Journey Around the World. Page 116 of the Floating Press 2009 edition. <clears throat> Are people who try to defend the use of the word faith like my grandfather trying to defend the Confederate flag? He insists it isn't racist, that it means something different than what society is saying it means. Shouldn't he just give up and express himself in different ways? Now this was just illustrative. Unfortunately, my real grandfather's dead both of them. Is it worth the uphill battle to try and defend the symbol etched on that fabric, though, for people who are for it? Should Christians just abandon the word faith? Is it sort of like that? Are Christians fighting for a lost cause that doesn't matter? Other Christians seem to think so, writing statements that treat faith pejoratively. For example, Geisler and Turek write, quote, in the light of evidence, critics, skeptics, and those of other faiths need to have more faith than we do, end quote. And that's from a book that's, to my point, entitled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That's from page 376. Impliedly, then, faith means a weaker position, doesn't it? But I do feel a tension with a moral obligation from Scripture regarding faith. How can I ignore faith when the Bible seems to command it? Hebrews tells us that, quote, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's from the NIV. Um, with this in mind, it's a good strategy to abandon the word faith altogether, or is it a good strategy? Doesn't the Bible call us to have faith as a moral obligation, though? So, there's a tension there. Faith looks idiotic, but the Bible is asking us to have faith. What does the Bible require us to do morally exactly? If we want to understand Scripture, we need to get into the heads of ancient Jews and Christians. To do that, we need to look at the New and Old Testament. In the Hebrew Scriptures, there's several words that might be translated into the faith of the English Bible. Emuna is used to refer to steady hands in Exodus 17.12. In other places, it means God's faithfulness. For example, in Deuteronomy 32. Um, the following is my own translation. It's, He is the rock. His work is perfect because all his paths are just. He is a God who is faithful. And that's just um, El Emuna. And then it says, Ve'en avon Avat Zadik Ve Yeshar, I think. It's hard to see the vowels on this paper. Um, without injustice, he is righteous. He can see it. Uh, well, you can't see it because this is my paper. But faithful is bolded because it's the word emuna. The Hebrew sentence structure may hint 
because sometimes there's parallelism. I'm not sure if this particular passage is parallelism, where you can tell what one line of Hebrew means by looking at the next line, because they'll repeat themselves in a slightly different way. The Hebrew sentence structure here may hint that this is a concept that's related to, that, that is faithfulness, is related to being without injustice and having righteousness. Most words translated to faith, though, are some form of a verb rather than a noun, like emunah. The most common of these verbs is aman. In the qual, it means to nourish. In the niffel stem, it means to be firm, established, or steadfast. In the hiffel stem, which is the most significant for our purposes, it means to nourish is established, regard as true, believe. Using it with different prepositions can change the meaning slightly. With lamid, it can be confident, resting on something. Uh, a lot of times that lamed is used kind of like how we use to in uh, like to the city in English. Um, with the bet proposition, it means to give assent to testimony. That bet is usually like an inside. And you can kind of remember that because the letter bet looks like a house. So, beharim would be in the hills. <clears throat> Another verb that can mean to have faith is batach. This one often appears with the preposition al, which means over or upon. And it means to lean on, confide in. So whenever it's used with this preposition, it can mean lean on, confide in. Um, with the preposition, you can almost think of it as being like the emotional state you feel when, let's say, like your leg is wounded and you're leaning on a walking stick. Erickson states, quote, it does not connote intellectual belief as much as it suggests trust and committing of oneself. Um, and that is from a book called Christian Theology, Miller J. Erickson, Grand Rapids Baker Academic, 2013. Uh, a lot of the information I took from there is from pages 869 to 870. Okay, let's look at the Hebrew. Let's look at the Greek for a bit. It's important to note that going into the New Testament, though, the Greek that they were using is highly Semitic. So it's very much influenced by the Middle Eastern view of the world. So you should have Semitic terms in mind when examining a Greek word. For example, you're probably better off examining nefesh, which is the, the Hebrew word that is translated often to soul. You'd be better off looking at what that meant within the Hebrew context which it meant like your whole self and it meant your neck. Um, you're better off looking at that word than Plato and trying to figure out what a Greek-speaking Jew in the first century would mean by the word psuche, which is what we translate from Greek to the English word soul. Um, for more information on nefesh and uh, psuche, you can look at uh, for Nefesh, you can see Mike Kaiser's The Unseen World, uh, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. That's page 42. And for Psyche, within the Greco-Roman context, you can see N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God, page 78 to 60. Okay, um, so with this in mind, we turn to the Greek words for faith. The main noun used is pistis. This is etymologically related to the Greek verb pisteou. The verb can mean either two things. It can mean to believe what someone says, to accept a statement is true, 
or it can signify personal trust as distinct from mere credence or belief. So you take something as true or it's personal trust. When the Bible talks about our need for faith, it seems to imply both of these meanings. But put more emphasis on the latter. Take, for example, Hebrews 11, verse 6, quote, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, end quote. And if you look at just that alone, it looks like, oh yeah, you need to believe in him and believe in his good character, because he'll reward those who seek him. But if you look at the context, well, we'll get to that later. I'm going to argue that the emphasis is more on the second definition. It's for several reasons. It's not enough to believe that he exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. This understanding would also encapsulate the abstract ideas behind Emuna, Batach, and Aman in the Hifl. And just for a little note, Hebrew verbs come in seven different patterns. The most common is the qual. I think it's like 65% of the verbs are qual. And it's just a simple action. So like, I ate the apple, you could translate that into the qual. The niffle is another pattern that can have the passive voice, among other uses. The apple was eaten. The hiffle usually has a causative voice. He caused the apple to be eaten. And you would you translate that into the hiffle voice. As a simple active then, aman means to nourish. Okay? As the simple active, it means to nourish. The niffle... So that's the one that's the passive voice. It means to be firm or established. So it's almost like if you're being nourished, you're firm or established. And while you might expect the hiffle form to mean cause to be nourished, it actually means to consider as established or regard as true. So it doesn't always have to be causative, but it's like a rule of thumb for what it would be. For more on verb patterns, you can see Mark D. Frutado's Beginning Biblical Hebrew, uh, uh, 2003, is page 64. Okay, Um, so combining the Hebrew and Greek definitions. Okay, abstract concepts develop from concrete objects. Like, for example... um, the word glory, kavod in Hebrew, it's it means heavy. And so when there was something glorious around you, it was like you felt a weight on you. Or you could think of heavy metals being worth a lot. From that concrete idea that you can feel, it's tactile, you get these more abstract ideas. Abstract concepts develop from concrete objects. Faith is an abstract concept, but we can feel the emotions and sense the abstraction by looking at the concrete roots. We have an image of someone leaning on a walking stick. We have nourishment. We have the same word being used to refer to steady hands, a strong arm, a walking stick we can rely on. Now these images that we're getting that are faithful These are things that warrant having faith in. And you'll notice this isn't, these aren't a whole lot of epistemological claims, right? It's not like saying there's this evidence and this and that. It's like the steadiness and steadfastness of something and like being cognizant of that is primarily where these abstractions would take you. 
Um, so how do we interpret the moral prerogative of faith within Hebrews? Well, the text of Hebrews seems to be asking people to have faith in God's existence and goodness. There seems to be more rhetoric and poetry behind the faith in God's goodness rather than his existence. And this is for two reasons. For one, the ancient world readily conceded that there was a supreme deity. Existence for him was not an issue like it is today in post-Enlightenment West. And two, the rhetoric of Hebrews employs examples that show actions rather than mental assent. In regards to the first point about everyone already believing in a supreme God, historian Tom Holland writes this regarding first century beliefs. To scholars learned in the study of the heavens, it appeared plain that the Jews worshipped the supreme God, who was to be identified with the king of all gods. Jupiter, the Romans called him, just as the Greeks knew him as Zeus. This practice of identifying the gods worshipped in one land with those honored in another was a venerable one. That's from Tom Holland's Dominion, Making, uh, uh, Making of the Western Mind, London Abacus, 2019, pages 30 to 31. The political genius Constantine capitalized on this universal belief in a supreme deity by being purposely cryptic in his statements so as to secure and consolidate power in his empire. Uh, Holland states on uh, in 313, issuing a proclamation that for the first time gave legal standing to Christianity, he, referring to Constantine, coyly refused to name the, quote, divinity who sits in heaven, end quote. The vagueness was deliberate. Christ or Apollo... Constantine wished to leave the choice of whom his subjects identified as the supreme divinity to them. Where there were divisions he aimed to blur. That's from page 112. Gonzalez states that when Constantine was determining where the walls of Constantinople would be built, he walked off into the countryside. When asked how far he intended to go, he said, quote, he is... Uh, or he is said to have answered, I'm not quoting Gonzalez, as far as the one who walks ahead of me. That's the end of Constantine quotes, continuing quoting Gonzalez. Naturally, Christians in his entourage would have understood these words to refer to their God, whereas pagans would have taken them to mean they're one of their gods. That's Justo El Gonzalez, the story, uh, the story of Christianity, the early church, the dawn of the Reformation, volume one. New York, Harper 1, 2010, page 136. Okay, so a lot of the ancient world believed in that from those specific evidences. You can also see that here. Both Christians and pagans thought he was referring to their God. Further evidence along these lines is in the continued belief in Yahweh in places that are moral disasters within the Bible itself. For example, in the episode of the Golden Calves, the existence of Yahweh is never questioned, but other gods are considered to have acted alongside Yahweh in freeing the people from Egypt. I have a footnote here. Robert Alter notes that the golden icon was conceived as the terrestrial throne or platform of the deity, singular or plural, having precisely the same function as the cherubim over the ark. Scholarship has duly registered an implicit polemic in this story against the northern kingdom of Israel, which set up golden calves at its sanctuaries in Bethel and Dan. Evidently, not at all as images of pagan worship, but as the throne of the God of Israel and a competing iconography to the one used in Jerusalem. It's from Robert Alter's The Five Books of Moses. It's from page 494. Additionally, 
Another example from the Bible, in Elijah's power encounter with the prophets of Baal, the existence of Yahweh is never in dispute. Instead, the entire conflict resides on believing loyalty, chesed. And this is a quote from the Bible. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. That's from Kings 18.21. And it's not like he's saying, Yahweh exists, I can prove it. Because, you know, if the universe was, if all things that begin to exist have a cause and the universe had a cause, you know, he's not doing any of that. He's saying, who's Lord? Who is the Lord? This is why Jesus' own brother wrote this, quote, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. End quote. That's from James 2, 19. When Paul was arguing in the Areopagus, he did not have to argue that God existed. He didn't make the cosmological argument or the ontological argument or the teleological argument or the moral argument. Rather, he pointed to what already existed a structure built for the unknown God and explained who he was. That's from Acts 17.23. Obviously, mental assent to God's existence isn't a chief moral concern if even demons, pagans, and apostate Israelites are all doing it already. If we're going to interpret the text of Hebrews correctly, we need to quit thinking like post-enlightenment Westerners. We question God's existence in a way foreign to the ancient world and to the text we're reading. Hume didn't live in ancient Greece. Even the Epicureans believed the gods existed. If you have read the Bible, compare how many times arguments are made for God's existence versus how many arguments are made for God's faithfulness in the Hebrew prophets. There are no direct, open, and notorious arguments for God's existence in the Bible. It was just assumed. The arguments for his character are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. You can make arguments from nature using scripture, but my point is that the Bible does not have a sentence like, you can know God exists because X. But the arguments and admonitions to remember God's faithfulness are everywhere. Exodus 13, 14, 1 Samuel 7, 12, Numbers 20, verse 16. Deuteronomy 9.7, and on and on and on. Almost all the Psalms, continuously in the prophets. And the dialogue in Job doesn't concern existence, but a demonstration of power. God doesn't say anything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. I am the cause. Instead, he says things like this. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? It's from Job 38, 1-2. It is his power that is at issue, not his ontological existence. Something else to note. Um, well, I guess that's good with that now. Um, in the text of Hebrews, we do not see... Yeah, it's returning to Hebrews, it, it, within the context, it's talking about the story of all these different people who've lived by faith. And you don't see Abel and Enoch and Noah quietly assenting to some theological doctrine in their study without evidence. But you see them going out and acting. Within the book of Hebrews, Abel makes a noble sacrifice. Enoch is taken up to heaven after living a commendable life. Noah leans on the words of God and builds an ark in preparation for things unseen. This is why Warren W. Wearsby states, quote, 
True Bible faith is not blind optimism or a manufactured hope so feeling. Neither is it an intellectual assent to a doctrine. It is certainly not believing in spite of evidence. That would be superstition. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. And that is from... Warren W. Wearsby's book, Be Confident, Live by Faith, Not by Sight, page 143 to 144. Okay. Rather than saying there's a link between faith and lack of evidence, theologian N.T. Wright states there's an indivisible link between faith and hope. Quote, faith, for Hebrews, is always closely linked to hope. Faith is looking at God and trusting him for everything, while hope is looking at the future and trusting God for it. As we've seen in verse 1, Hebrews actually defines faith in relation to hope. It's one thing to have hope, but when you have faith underneath it, it gives it assurance. He analogizes faith to an ice-climbing axe being used by someone who's trying to get up a mountain. And that is from N.T. Wright's Hebrew for Everyone, page 128. Okay, here's my conclusion. What are we morally obligated to do? Lean on God like an ice climber leans into an axe. Trust in his faithfulness. Cling to his word even when the storms of the world crash against us. None of this involves having to assent to a bad idea despite poor evidence. The Bible does not condemn conjecture. Uh, Which, funnily enough, this is a quote from the Quran. Most of them follow nothing but mere conjecture, but conjecture is in no way a substitute for truth. God is cognizant of what they do. That's Surah 1036. Instead, though, we're invited to question. The Bible invites those who are questioning. Mark 9, 24, um, you know, help my own belief. and gives an example of reasoning, evidence, and logic being used to spread the truth of the faith. You can see that in Acts 17, 2 through 4. 17 verses, uh, oh, sorry, Acts 17, verses 2 through 4, and verses 17 through 31. Also Acts 18, verse 4, and 19, verse 8. In Christianity, if you just like read, you know, Athanasius and Tertullian and Justin Martyr, Christianity has a history where philosophy has always played a crucial role in the nature of believers and in the proclamation of a Christian worldview in general, and the gospel in particular. With those definitions set in place and our moral obligations set down, we can look and see which model of how faith and reason interact does the most justice to the definition of faith as laid out above. We'll look at um, which one coheres best with the utility of reason and what our moral obligations are and go through the different views. We will do that next time. Thank you guys for stopping by. Oh, 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 oh,